0: Good evening. It's good to see each one of you here tonight. And uh, I'm rejoicing that uh, my rebuke about no fried chicken Sunday took good effect. Of I had fried chicken last night, fried chicken tonight. That's good. Had some good blackberry cobbler, great meal. And I want to thank the ladies and maybe some gentlemen cook too, I don't know, who prepared the meals. Delicious want to thank the congregation for the gracious way that you have received myself and my wife and the lessons that have been presented. It's been, as far as I'm concerned, a good week. We began uh, one, one other thing. Uh, need to give the commercial here. As has been announced a couple of times, I'm now serving as the director of the Nashville School of Preaching. Matt is a student there. But I also want to remind you that the, I, I'll say it this way, when I was at Freed Hardiman, Brother E. Claude Gardner used to fuss at us. He was president of the school. He would fuss at the students because he would remind us all the time that the name of the school is not Freed. It's Freed Hardeman College. Well, the name of the school is not Nashville School of Preaching. It's Nashville School of Preaching and Biblical Studies, which means anybody can come and attend and take classes. We've graduated a couple of ladies. They are not trained as preachers but they came to learn more about the Bible. They were both Bible class teachers. We've had elders come. We've had deacons come just to become more fluent in the scriptures. And if you would uh, like to pursue that, uh, our catalog is online. Just Google Nashville School of Preaching. It'll take you right there. It's on Creve Hall's website. And read through the catalog and you will see that the school is tuition free. Won't cost you a thing. Occasionally, you might be required to take a book, uh, buy a book, but it's, it's, it's well worth that and much, much more. We'd be delighted to have you as a student at Nashville School of Preaching. We began this series of lessons Sunday morning as we thought about lessons from the life of Moses with Moses at the burning bush, and we looked at the excuses that Moses made to God as to why he could not go down to Egypt and deliver the people We also noted how God answered those excuses and we learned from that lesson that excuse making has been around a long, long time and our excuses are not any better than the excuses that Moses made. And so we need to quit making excuses and get about the business at hand. Then secondly, we looked again at the interaction between Moses and God there at the burning bush and talked about the nature of the God who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush as we talked about some of the characteristics of the God that you and I worship. Then last night, we took a look at that passage in the book of Acts chapter seven, where we're told that Moses was trained in in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And yet when we look at Moses' writings in the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, We recognize that there's none of the wisdom of the Egyptians in those books. And we raise the question, how do you explain that? And the only way you can explain it is inspiration. And so we looked at some of the reasons we believe or reasons we can give why we believe the Bible is a message from God. Tonight, I want to look at the thought of the view from Mount Nebo. Now, I want you to think with me. And this is a long journey for some of us, believe you, believe me. I want you to put yourself back to the time when you were maybe 10 or 12 years old. And you, you've, you've dreamed all of your life of going to Disneyland or Disney World. And your parents finally tell you that we're going to go to Disney World this summer. They tell you the date and, and you mark that date on your calendar and you... you You're just filled with anxiety about that and finally the time comes. And so mom and dad load up the car with all the suitcases and everything that you'll need and you get in the car and you head out to Disney World. And all along the way, you keep asking how long, how much further, are we there yet? And all along the way, you dream of how it's going to be. To walk down that main street and see that beautiful castle and maybe see Mickey and Goofy and all of the other characters and just so excited. And then you get to Orlando, you park the car and you walk up to the gate and it's closed and you look through the fence and you see all the rides in there and you see all the the attractive things in there and you realize you're not going to be able to go in. It's just like you imagined, but you can't go in. How would you describe your feelings? Disappointed, disillusioned, disheartened, dispirited, troubled. What word would you use to describe how you as an 11 or 12, 10 or 12 year old child, after all of this anxiety planning and wishing and waiting and you did not get to go in. Now, I know that's not a very good example, but put ourselves now in Moses' place. When in Deuteronomy chapter 34, and if you've got your Bible, we're gonna read that in just a moment. Put yourself in Moses' place when he is now an old man, about 120 years old, in fact, and has led the people of Israel, the children of Israel, from Egyptian bondage through that period of wandering in the wilderness, as we say, up to, as the old song says, the verge of Jordan. And the Lord lets him look over into the promised land but he knows he cannot go in. How did Moses feel as he stood there on Mount Nebo, looked over into the promised land, a land he had longed for, a land that he had worked for, a land that he had led God's people to for many years, but he knew that he would not be able to cross the River Jordan and go into the promised land. How do you think he felt? With those words we used a few moments ago, disappointed? disillusioned, disheartened, dispirited, trouble. Would those describe how Moses felt? We don't know, but I think they would, you would describe how we might have felt on that occasion. In the 34th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, we read, then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pichita, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtala and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea, the South and the plain of the Valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac and Jacob saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes but you shall not cross over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And he, God, buried him in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his grave to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dimmed, nor his natural vigor diminished. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended and Joshua. The son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. But since then, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants and in all his his land. And by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of Israel. Let's think about uh, Moses on that mountain. And that promise that is mentioned here in Deuteronomy 34, this promise of this land to the children of Israel. First, by whom, to whom, by whom and when was this promise made? Well, we've mentioned this several times already this week. It was given first, a promise was given first to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verses one to three. Now, people who listen to me preach on a regular basis often hear me talk about underlined passages. This is one of those passages that if it isn't underlined in your Bible or some way noted in your Bible, it needs to be because it's one of the most important verses, passages in all of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the beginning of the covenant that God struck with Abraham and his descendants. The rest of the book of Genesis tells us how they ended up in Egypt. But that promise is repeated in Genesis chapter 15, 17, and a couple of other places. And it's it's enlarged. And so we know that God promised them at least a land. He promised through Abraham that they would become a great nation. He promised that uh, descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore and the one most important to us that in his seed all nations of the earth would be blessed. And I cannot overemphasize this but everything from Genesis chapter 12 verse 1 all the way through Revelation chapter 22 deals with the fulfillment of these promises given to Abraham. And so right here in Deuteronomy chapter 34, as in Exodus chapter two and three, which we read Sunday morning, Moses or God rather ties all of these things back to that promise given to Abraham. So to whom and by whom had this land been promised? It was promised to Abraham and his descendants by God himself. Now, after his people had suffered many years, In slavery, as we read in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, God remembered his covenant, remembered his people, remembered the covenant they struck with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the fact that his people were now in slavery and had been for a couple of hundred, three, four hundred years. And so having suffered, he decided to bring them out of Egyptian bondage and begin to fulfill that promise of a great nation and the land. And Moses was going to be, if you will, the tour guide for this great adventure. He reminds Moses of this fact in Exodus chapter 3, verses 3 through 10, which we read Sunday morning. As he is standing before that burning bush, he reminds them of the covenant he struck with Abraham. And so, thus Moses begins the journey that ultimately led him to the top of Mount Nebo in Pisgah, A journey, as we know, that was of some 40 years duration. From the time of the burning bush to the time Moses is on the top of Mount Nebo, 40 years. And Moses is a old man, 140 years old. Now, before we go further, we must remind ourselves why Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land. Shortly after leaving Egypt, in Exodus chapter 17, and we won't read this, but in Exodus, Exodus chapter 17, verses one through 17, the people come to Mount Horab and began to complain against Moses because they had no water. And I imagine water was hard to come by in that very arid region of the Middle East. God told Moses then to take Aaron's rod and to take that rod and strike the rock in the place called Massa and Meribah and they would have water to drink. Moses did what God told him to do. He took Aaron's rod and in front of all of the people, he struck the rock and the rock gave forth water and the people were satisfied. Now, some 40 years later, as the people continued to journey toward the promised land, they came to Kadesh. And again, as their fathers had done 40 years earlier, they began to murmur and complain to Moses because of a lack of water. Now this time when Moses talked to God about it, God told him to speak to the rock and it would bring forth water. However, Moses, as the text says, as we'll read in just a moment, Moses did not believe God. He did not hallow God by obeying him, but rather he again took the rod and struck, and struck the rock. God gave him water out of the rock, contrary to what we might think he would do, but he did give them water. But Moses, because of his disbelief and disobedience, Suffered mightily. Let's read Moses' own account of the event in Numbers chapter 20, verses 9 through 13. Numbers 20, 9 through 13. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the water of the rock twice with his rod and water came out abundantly and the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Meribah because the children of Israel Contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. Because he did not believe God and did not hallow him by obeying him, as a result, he was denied entrance to the promised land. Now, return to the top of Mount Nebo with Moses. Again, what do you think he was thinking? What was he feeling as he stood there on Mount Nebo? And by the way, that picture is actually taken from the top of Mount Nebo. As they looked out across the Jordan River, there in the foreground to the rich plains, there in Jericho and the Valley of Jezreel and other places, what was Moses thinking? Was he saying, maybe pleading with God, if I could just go back and undo what I did before, if I could just undo the thing that I did in, in, from a lack of faith and in disobedience and refusing to hallow you. can I? If I could just go back and undo that. Oh, Lord, just give me another chance. Did he plead for a special dispensation? Lord, look at all that I've done for you. For over 40 years, I've, I've dealt with this stiff-necked and disobedient people of yours. Look at all of the things I've done on your behalf. If I could just go back and undo it. Was Moses feeling? What was Moses feeling? as he peered peered across the Jordan River into the promised land. But you know, Moses was not the only one who left Egypt who was not allowed to enter the promised land. Do you remember back when they first came out of Egypt that Moses selected 12 spies, one from each tribe, sent sent them into Canaan to spy out the land and bring back a report. They came back with a report saying this land is exactly like God said it was or said it is, a land flowing with milk and honey, a rich land, a, a good land. You remember also they brought back as evidence this cluster of grapes that was so big that two men had to carry it on a pole on their shoulders. But... Ten of those men said, we can't go and take that land because we are as grasshoppers in their sight. They're giants in the land. We cannot take that land. Joshua and Caleb, Caleb, on the other hand, said, no, we can take that land. We can take that land. But then when the people believed the bad report from the 10, Exodus chapter 14, verses 19 through 32 God told them that they would not enter the promised land. And one of the things that they were crying out about, would you bring us out into this desert that our children would die in this land, in this forsaken land? And so God said to these adults, you will not go in Everybody above the age of 20 will not go in. You will die in the wilderness. But these children you're so worried about, they will go in to the promised land. Now, let's be clear. The common factor in Moses not getting to go in and the adults who left Egypt not getting to go in was unbelief and disobedience. That's the common factor. It was Moses' own actions that kept him from the promised land. It was the people's own action that kept them from the promised land. Now, some might ask, preacher, what has that got to do with me? That's a great story, preacher. But what has that got to do with me? Well, if you were to take your Webster's Dictionary or go to Wikipedia and look up promised land, you would find that it's defined as, quote, a place or condition believed to promise final satisfaction or realization of hopes. It has become part of our vernacular, the promised land. Two of the synonyms given in my dictionary were paradise or heaven. And a third one, Zion, the promised land, heaven, paradise, Zion. One can easily see then that the whole Exodus story, the whole story of God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt, God delivering his people from the slavery of sin, crossing the Red Sea, going through the waters of baptism as Paul suggests, living a period of time in wilderness as we live in the wilderness of a sinful world, then crossing the Jordan River, symbolizing the crossing of death into the promised land, all of this The whole Exodus story, the whole Exodus experience, including the destination of the promised land serves as a type or an analogy of our journey to heaven, the eternal dwelling place promised by God, our promised land. But we know from scripture, some who begin that journey, are not going to make it. Some may get, as it were, figuratively to the very verge of Jordan. Be called up on the land, up on the mountain of Nebo to look over into that land and yet fail to go in. And the reason will be the same as before. Unbelief, an unwillingness to hallow And obey God. You know, I've been accused, and other preachers have been accused, of being unchristian when you would say that there are some people that want to get there, yet they will not get there. Some people who do the things that they think will get them there, and yet they won't get there. They say that's unchristian. But listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 21 and following. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21 and following. In the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what Jesus said. Yep. Let's try 5, 21, and following. That's that's still not right. 21, 6, 21 to 23. Seven, that's it. Thank you. Due to technical difficulties. You know what that is? I'm going to tell you what that is. You know, if you're not computer literate, I'm going to tell you what that is. Why that says six instead of seven? That is a BCK error. Between chair and keyboard. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The key is doing the will of the Father. Some folks think they're doing that, but they are not. And Jesus himself says there are some who want to get there, but will not. And you and I know, just as some of those who left Egypt with a desire to get to that promised land didn't make it, including Moses, we know that there are those who will desire to get to heaven today, but will not make it, even though they start out that way. Question. Does the fact that some people you know, does the thought that people that you know are not going to make it, does that thought disappoint you? Does that thought discourage you? Does that thought disillusion you? Does that thought trouble you? Does the possibility that you might not get there trouble you? If that be the case, then we need to listen to Jesus' words in John chapter 14, verses 1 to 4. It is the last week of his life. He's in the upper room with his disciples. He has told them, I'm going away. That bothered them, that troubled them. And Jesus says to them, let not your heart be troubled You believe in God, believe also in me and my Father's house or many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Let not your heart be troubled. How often do we need to hear such a comforting statement? Let not your heart be troubled. Why should they not be troubled? Why should they not be perplexed? Why should they not be agitated? That's what that word means. Why should they not be discouraged, despondent, disappointed? Why? Jesus says, well, you have faith in God. Have faith in me. What was Moses' problem? What was the people's problem? They didn't believe. They didn't have faith. Now we know that simple mental sin is not what is being discussed here, but it is a conviction that leads to a lifestyle. It's a conviction that leads to a confident living in anticipation of entrance into that promised land. You believe in God, you believe, believe also in me. That belief in God and belief or faith in Jesus that helps us to realize there is many, there is much room in heaven. And I have to say, in my father's house are many mansions. I did enough study in the Greek Testament to know that that's a very, very poor translation. But when we hear the word mansion, we think of a great big house up on the hill with columns, maybe a balcony in the front. The word in the original language is the word for tent. Tent. The beauty and the grandeur of heaven is not contemplated here. That's contemplated over in Revelation 21 and 22. What's being contemplated here is the fact that there are many dwelling places in heaven. There is enough room for everybody. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. For these two reasons, they should not be troubled, nor should we. A third reason why we should not be troubled and they should not have been troubled, because Jesus was going to prepare a place for them. Jesus went to prepare that place. We've often said, we mentioned it in an earlier lesson, that heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. That's a good statement. I like that. We've often sung of songs about the fact that God has prepared is preparing that place that eternal dwelling places we'll see in a few moments for those who are prepared to go there. But a fourth thing, they had faith in God. They should have faith in Jesus. They should not be troubled because there's plenty of room there. They should not be troubled because he went to prepare that place. But number four, they should not be uh, troubled because he's coming back again to take them where he is going. If we're troubled and we have faith in God that produces that confidence and that obedience, we know he will come again and take us to be with him for an eternity. Now we know and we understand here in John chapter 14 that Jesus is talking about that eternal dwelling place we call heaven. And he's gonna come and he's gonna take the faithful to be in that place. But as we bring the lesson to a close over the next few moments, did Jesus say anything else about heaven? Indeed he did. Let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Because there Jesus said that heaven is the place where God is. Matthew 6, verse 9. In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name our Father in heaven. It is the place where God is. Let's go back to Sunday morning and think about Moses as he turned aside to see this great sight and he stood before that burning bush and he heard those words, take your shoes off your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground and he perceived the presence of God in that bush that was burning but was not consumed. Have you ever thought about what it's going to be like to be ushered into the very presence of God? One of the classes I teach at the National School of Preaching and have taught many places is a class on the book of Revelation. And my favorite section of the book of Revelation is not the, is the, not, not the apocalyptic sections that are hard to understand, but Revelation four and five. When the Bible tells us that John looked and behold an open door in heaven. And I like to introduce that section like this. In my grandmother's house up in Robertson County, when we were kids and we'd go to grandmother's house, big old farm house. You went in the front door, big long hallway and right there was a set of stairs that went up to the second floor a bedroom on one side, a bedroom on the other side where my two cousins slept and right at the top of the stairs was a door and we were told do not go into that room. Being curious kids, we wanted to know what was behind that door. Never did find out by the way but I remember one time we went up those stairs and it was cracked just a little and we stood there What is behind that door? We didn't dare open it. But can you imagine how John felt when he looked and he saw that open door into heaven? And he was allowed to look into the very throne room of God and see God in all of his glory sitting on his throne in the 24 elders sitting around, and the four living creatures, and they were casting their crowns before him. Holy, 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 you are worthy of our worship because you are the creator. And the beauty of that place is so grand that John struggles with the limitations of language to describe it. Brother Donnie back there, and Miss Annie have gone to some places we suggested they go out west and seen some of the beauties of creation. If you've ever gone to the Grand Canyon and you've come back and tried to describe that to somebody who's never been there and it just comes out sounding like a big hole in the ground, but you've been there. You've stood at the edge of it. You know that's not the case, but you just cannot find the words to describe that or Yosemite or or Grand Tetons or the Rocky Mountains. You cannot find the words to describe that in such a way that they will understand what you saw. John struggles even by inspiration with the limitations of language to describe the grandeur and the beauty of that place. And right in the middle of it is God sitting on his throne. Jesus said, God is in heaven. Secondly, he calls it a reward. Matthew five and verse 12, rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It is described in Matthew chapter six, verses 19 and 21 as a treasure. Lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break through and steal. He gives two parables in Matthew chapter 13, that attempt to communicate the value of that place, of that reward. Matthew 13, and 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven, he says, is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. It is a reward. It is a treasure the value of which cannot be measured. Number three, Jesus said that it is a place where God's will is done. Back to the Sermon on the Mount in what we often call the model prayer. Jesus says in Matthew 6 and verse 10, Our, uh, your, kingdom be, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In addition to that description of heaven in, Ma- in Revelation 4 and 5, My second probably favorite passage in the book of Revelation is Revelation 21 and 22 where heaven is described in minute detail, but the beauty and the thing that gets me more than pearly gates and and streets of gold is what's not going to be there because God's will is done to perfection in heaven. There are not going to be any liars, no evil, no... Adultery, no pain, no death, no sorrow, no tears. It is a place where God's will is done. Then finally, along this line, it is where the redeemed of the ages will be. Matthew 8 and verse 11, and I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The redeemed of the ages will be there. I know we often talk about getting there and asking Paul or asking Peter about this or that thing, or sitting down and talking with Paul. And there's a great old spiritual that talks about sitting down with my Jesus and resting a little while. Y'all ever sing that song up here? Beautiful old song. Are those sentiments true? I don't know. But wouldn't it be grand to be able to visit with those, the redeemed of the ages? And so we return now to John chapter 14 because you see Thomas's question in John 14 and verse five, we don't know where you're going and how can we know the way? Thomas cries out to Jesus. That question is relevant to us today, is it not? In answer to that, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And it is significant that the definite article is there. I am the way, the truth, the life. Not a way, a truth, a light, a light. I am the way, the truth, and the light. So much so that in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul says there's no other way, no other name given among men whereby they might be saved other than the name Jesus Christ. How can we know the way? Don't we want to know how to get there? Indeed, we do. And the answer is found in verse six. It's by following Jesus and doing the things that Jesus asks us to do. It's by doing His will. Remember Matthew 7:21 to23? He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Is your heart troubled today? Are you on that road to the promised land? And I know that you've heard the gospel plan of salvation many times. Not particularly necessary for me to repeat that here, but if you believe that Jesus is God's son, if you're willing to confess that name before this assembly, repent of your sins. And then be baptized in the watery grave for the remission of your sins, coming into contact with the blood of Christ to arise to walk in newness of life, and then commit your life to living for Him the rest of your days, then you have the confidence that you're on that way to the promised land. If you do not have that confidence, the question comes tonight why not? Why not tonight? Begin to do the Father's will. If we can help you with that in any way, we encourage you to come to the front. Make your need known while together we stand and sing.